Ephesians. I don't care if we're here till midnight. We're finishing the book of Ephesians tonight. And if you need a Bible, you can. You're not going to be here till midnight. Don't worry. You know, but uh, lift up your hand, and the ushers will bring you a Bible if you need one, so that you can follow along uh, with us in our in our Bible study. And we are picking up in verse 13. In the second half of our Bible study last week, we began talking about the warfare of the believer. So far in this letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul has talked to us about, first of all, the wealth of the believer... That is everything that we have as those that are called in Christ Jesus. And then he talked to us about the walk of the believer. Or that is what our life should look like now that we are those that are called by his name. That we are Christians. And if a person is walking or living in Christ in the wealth that they've been given. And if they're walking in Christ according to his desires and the moving of his spirit within their lives. Then the immediate reaction of that is that there's going to be a warfare in your life. Because the devil, the enemy of our faith, the enemy of our souls is not going to stand by and just allow us to defect from his control and his kingdom. And come into the, you know, the kingdom of light without opposing that in some way, if he can, and within his reach. And so Paul doesn't just give us the wealth and then talk to us about the walk, but he's also faithful to warn us about the warfare that will accompany the life of a Christian. Now where we left off, Paul has been giving us insights into our enemy and a briefing concerning the battle that we're in, that we face. And in our study last time, we talked about Satan, the history, the personality, the agenda that he has. We talked about his tricks and his tools and the traps that he employs. We talked about the organizational force or the army that he has at his disposal. And we talked about the nature of this war that is being waged against us. And if you missed last week's study, I would highly recommend that you pick up the CD or go online and listen to that. Because I find that to to understand these things is very helpful. Because when things begin to stir up within your life and the enemy of your faith comes against you. And you start to see things happening within your family that are unsettling and disconcerting. Or when you're watching things take place on the political stage that, that, that are unsettling, that you see there's problems, there's something happening, something's not right. Or even within you personally, when things begin to happen, depression, anxiety, and all of the rest, when those things begin to happen, you recognize the source of it because you understand the enemy and the nature of the war that we're in. So if you weren't here, I would recommend that you do that. Get that tape. So last week, Paul left us in the briefing room, talking to us about our enemy and about the battle that we're in. This week, we leave the briefing room and we step into the armory. Paul is taking us now into the armory to prepare us for the battle. And if you would look with me at verse 13 there in Ephesians chapter 6. 
Paul says, wherefore, in light of who our enemy is, and in light of the nature of this battle that we're facing, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. He tells us that in light of these things, we're to take unto us the whole armor that God has provided for us in this warfare. Now, for many, it is disconcerting that we have an enemy, and it's a source of fear that we are in a war. When I say those things, it it makes the hair stand up on your arms. It makes you get a little nervous, and maybe it it keeps you up at night to think, you mean there's a war, there's a battle, I'm being attacked by an invisible enemy? But before you allow you know, fear to accompany the fact of this battle that we're in, let me give you the facts concerning our enemy and concerning this war. First of all, the enemy of our faith, the enemy of our souls, has already been defeated. The source of his strength was trying to keep Christ from the cross. And when Jesus hung on the cross and uttered the words, It is finished. At that moment, the devil was defeated. His plan, his defection, his agenda was crushed. He will not succeed. It's already been done. It's already been accomplished. His power has been broken. And if you're in Christ Jesus, that means that Jesus Christ now lives inside of you. And because Jesus Christ lives inside of you, it means that Satan is afraid of you. He's not afraid of you. Okay? (laughs) You don't scare him at all. But he's deathly afraid of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that because you are in Christ and Christ is in you, therefore Satan is afraid of you because of Christ that's in you. And I like to think of the bully. Remember, you know, those days, maybe you were, you were the bully, you know, or maybe you were the one being bullied. I was the one being bullied, you know. And, and I remember, you know, the bully comes and he's very intimidating. And he's big, and, you know, he talks loud, and he smells, you know, and all, all these things accompany the bully. But what I discovered at one point is that all you have to do with the bully is stand up to them. That if you, you don't have to fight them, you, don't have to, you can't beat them, but if you just stand up to them, they, you, you realize that they're actually more afraid than they put on. And, and the, the front that they're, they're using is trying to scare you, but in actuality, they're afraid. And thus Paul, over and over again in this passage, he doesn't tell us to fight. He tells us to stand. Because the reality is, if you're in Christ Jesus, then Satan is actually afraid of you. And all you have to do is stand. And that's why he keeps saying, do everything you can to withstand in the evil day. To stand against the wiles of the devil. Just stand in there. He's already been defeated. Fact number two is that we have a two-to-one advantage over our enemies. I pointed out to you last week that Satan, when he fell, took one-third of the angelic realm with him. Well, if he took one-third with him, then how many remain? Two-thirds. So we have a two-to-one advantage on our side in this war that's over him. There are more that are with us than are with them. And fact number three is that the Lord provides for us the necessary armor so that we can stand in this battle protected. And safe. Well, you say, well, what is the purpose of this armor in this battle? I'm glad you asked that. Because in verse 13, Paul tells us the answer. 
He says, wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. In the evil day. Now, that's another thing that can stir up fear and anxiety within us when we realize that Paul is telling us that there is an evil day that you might find yourself in right now or you can know for certain that it is coming. There is a very real yet invisible spiritual realm that exists alongside of the physical realm that you and I exist within. We see it throughout Scripture, the story of Elisha at Dothan there in 2 Kings chapter 6, when the whole army of the Syrians make it their aim and their agenda to just take out one man. The whole army girds themselves and, and, and comes into battle and surrounds one man and his servant, Elisha. And the servant of Elisha wakes up early and realizes that there's a siege and that they're in big trouble. And so he wakes up Elisha and he says, Master, we're toast, we're fried, we're dead. The whole army, they're coming for you. And Elisha smiles and he says, Lord, open his eyes. And then the servant of the Lord goes back, or the servant of the man of God goes back outside and he looks and it says that his eyes were open and he saw that the whole mountain in the valley was filled with horses and chariots of fire. His eyes were opened to what was happening in the invisible realm. And Elisha's word was, see, there are more with us than there are with them. And he couldn't see it, and he was fearful because of that, that he couldn't see it. But the fact was that the armies of God and the angels of heaven were protecting Elisha, and nothing could harm him in that time. And, and sure enough, Elisha and his servant prevailed in that. They, did, they were not snuffed out. God was able to protect them, and he did. We see it also in Daniel chapter 10. It tells us that Daniel set forth to, 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 to seek the Lord, to pray. And three weeks into his prayer session, Gabriel shows up. That ever happened to anybody? That's never happened to me. It, it happened to Daniel. Gabriel shows up in the middle of Daniel's prayer time and he says, Daniel, at the very moment you started praying three weeks ago, the Lord sent me to talk to you. But the prince of Persia withstood me and I was kept from coming to you until... Michael the archangel was sent, dispatched, and he helped me. And now I am come to give you skill and understanding. You are greatly beloved. For three weeks, Daniel had to persevere for the message, the answer to come to him. Because there was something going on that was invisible that he couldn't see. There's an invisible realm that coexists alongside with the physical realm that we exist in. And the truth of the matter is that at strategic times and in varying ways, Satan himself will launch an attack against you and I. It's what Paul is calling here the evil day. And there's a strategy. There's a boardroom in Satan's kingdom somewhere where your name or your situation, your thing is being discussed. And there's a day coming when Satan will launch an attack against you. The most insightful instance where we see this happening in the pages of Scripture is in Job chapter 1. In Job chapter 1, and I would highly recommend that it, you become very familiar with the book of Job. Because there's so much insight 
It answers the question of why bad things happen to good people. That's a question that many of us ask, isn't it? That's something that's in our hearts. Like, why this person is a good person? Why are they going through this? And, and the book of Job deals with that thing. But let me just read to you a conversation that happens between the father and the devil. That Job didn't even know was happening. But Job was the center or the topic of the conversation. Listen to this. I wonder if his ears were ringing. Job chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Now there was a day, and believe me, it was Job's evil day, even as Paul says in Ephesians here. He says, There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made a hedge around him, and around his house, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and, the substance, or, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he has, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only... Upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Now there are four facts about the evil day that we discover from this small passage here in Job chapter 1. First of all, we learn, and I pointed this out last week, that Satan is not in hell. Satan exists in the earth. God says, where have you been? And he says, I've been in the earth running to and fro, going to and fro throughout the earth. Satan is in the earth. We also learn that Satan is also an observer of men. That he watches. He has his feelers, his scope, his cameras, if you would, on us constantly. He watches what we do. He sees our weaknesses and our strength, and he's taking notes. He's an observer of the affairs of our lives. We also learn, and this is hugely important, please don't miss this. We learn that Satan himself acknowledged that he could not touch Job because of the protection that God placed around him. Satan himself said, I can't touch him because you have put a fence around him and around his house and around all that he has on every side and I cannot get at him. Satan said that himself and you must understand that. And then finally, we also learn that his plans and his desires, Satan's plans and Satan's desires must be submitted, adjusted, and approved by God before he can go forth and put them into practice. You say, well, that makes me more upset than I was before. 
Because that means it isn't Satan doing it at all, that it's God at the end of the day that's allowing these things to happen in the evil day. So what gives? How does that work? Why on earth would God allow Satan to do anything in my life, especially if I'm his child? Why would that happen? Well, you've got to understand. As we read Job and we answer the question of why do bad things happen to good people, well, we start to understand when we look at what took place in Job's life exactly why God might allow these things to happen within our lives. Well, what happened? Why did God allow Satan to have his way with Job? Well, first of all, he does it to teach Job and and us, and I, I will turn it now from Job to us because I'm talking about our evil day, not his. He allows bad things to happen because, first of all, it teaches us about ourselves. It teaches us about ourselves. There was things about Job that Job didn't know. And Job needed to know. And it was through the attack and the war that Satan waged that Job discovered those things that he needed to know. Second of all, it trains us, as it trained him, for and in the battle that we face. I think of when the children of Israel took the land, the Canaanites, you know, and they were told to go in and wage war. And God said, I'm not going to drive them all out at once. I'm going to leave some behind so that you can teach your children to fight. And if we're in a battleground and we're called into a battle, then that means we must learn how to fight in it. And therefore, God will allow an attack to be launched about us, not to destroy us, but to teach us how to stand in the battle. So he allows it to teach us for the battle. Thirdly, he allows it to happen to change us, to sharpen us, and to shape us. He uses the trials, the struggles, the attacks, the evil of the enemy as it comes against us. He uses those things within our lives to change us, to transform us, to sharpen us, and to burn away those things, those parts of us that are wicked, and to bring forth the things that are right. Fourthly, He allows the evil of the enemy to touch our lives to prepare us for the blessing that he has in our future. You look at the book of Job, and God intended to give Job twice as much as he lost. And we didn't get to the part there where Job loses everything, but you'll read the story on your own. God's intention was to give Job twice as much as he had at the beginning, but he wasn't ready. He couldn't handle that blessing at the beginning of the book. It wasn't until after he withstood and went through the battle and God's work was accomplished within his life from the battle that he was ready for the blessing that God had prepared for his life. Fifthly, he allows it to increase our faith. When we stand and we succeed, when we gain victory in our lives against the devil, it increases our faith in our God and the one who is greater, the one who is stronger. And finally, He allows it because when we stand in victory, it brings glory to his name. It brings glory to him. What did Satan say? He said, the only reason why Job serves you is because you've blessed him. He's a mercenary. If you take away the blessing from his life, he will curse you to your face. And when Job stood victorious and didn't curse God at the blasting of his substance... Job said, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. And it gave God an opportunity to look at his enemy and say, see, 
He serves me because he loves me, not because I've blessed him. And the same thing is true within our lives as we stand in the evil day and don't give in to the temptation or give in to the attitude of wanting to curse God or become bitter with God. It glorifies God as we triumph over the enemy of God. Amen? So God allows the battle. He lets these things happen because it serves a purpose within our lives. And so... Every single one of us that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and even those that don't, there is an evil day coming for you. Jesus said that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That the sun shines on the just and the unjust. And there is an evil day coming, or has come, or there are several that are coming for every single one of us. The part that we often fail to understand is that God is working all of that to the good. Now, notice with me at the end of verse 13, back in Ephesians uh, chapter 6. He says, Take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and then having done all to stand. And notice right here at the end of the verse when he says, Having done all to stand, there are two things that we need to understand before we talk about the armor pieces itself. And there are very quickly, is that the armor that we are being given that Paul is telling us about and asking us to take, that the armor of Christ or the armor of God does not prevent the battle, but it protects us in the battle. The purpose of the armor is not so that Satan can't touch us because he's going to come and the evil day is going to come, but rather it's to protect us and preserve us through the battle. And we know that because he says right there that when that evil day comes, that he says, having done all to stand. And that means that you're going to need every piece of this armor. If God says that you're to take it, then that means you're going to need it. And it's going to take all that it is in that day for you to stand. And Paul says that we can stand because we're we're standing in the power of his might. And we're being protected and preserved by him. And that he is not going to allow us to be destroyed in the middle of this calamity. So what is this armor that we're told to take? The first article there in verse 14 is the belt of truth. Look with me there. It says, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. You might have it in your translation that it says, wearing the belt of truth. Now, the illustration that the Apostle Paul is employing to lay this concept before us is that of the Roman soldier wearing his armor. He's using the Roman armament of his day as an illustration to describe our protection or our armor in the spiritual realm. Now, the belt or the buckler in the Roman armor was an essential, probably the most essential ingredient in the armor of the Roman soldier. Because the buckler or the belt that the the, the Roman soldier had was the thing that held all of the rest of the armor together. All of the other parts attached in some way to that buckler. And if that buckler was secure and and being worn correctly, then that soldier knew that when he went into the battle, that he wasn't going to have to worry of any of his other parts of his armor failing him because that belt was secure. The belt was working and everything was securely attached to it. Now in the Christian's life, he says that this belt, the belt, this invisible spiritual 
piece of our equipment that he gives us is the truth. And what he means by this is what it means to wear the belt of truth. It means to have every area of our lives attached to and in line with the truth of God's word. For us to wear the belt, all every area of our life is attached to and in line with the truth of God's word. If Satan watches our lives and observes us, and he can find an area of our life that is not attached to the truth of God's word, then he finds a weakness and he can find a vulnerability or, or a place where our armor isn't girded properly, and he begins to make a plan of how he's going to attack us. If a person is obedient to the truth of God in every area, in their finances, in the way they conduct their business, they might be an excellent parent and and, and an incredible spouse the way they deal with their husband or their wife. They might be a kind person and benevolent and generous and giving of their substance. They may serve in several areas of ministry. They might have their eating under control and, and, and their, you know, their appetite in, in, in obedience to Christ. And they might not be a person that's given to temper. But yet there's just that one area of their life. All the other things are attached, but there's one area of their life that they, there's compromise and it's not attached to the truth. They, don't, they haven't yielded their, you know, their sex drive to the things of God, to the Word of God. Or, or they, they're, they're still given to tell lies, you know, to be deceptive with their words and to give innuendos. Then Satan sees that, and what it does is it provides him an opportunity to make a plan. That this is where I can get in, and if I can get in in this one area then I know I'm going to be able to just make the rest of the armor just fall off. All the rest of it's going to fail because of just this one area. I remember hearing the story one time of Satan's garage sale. And Satan was having a garage sale and he was selling all of his tools that he uses to destroy lives. And people came and they saw these glorious instruments, alcoholism and lust and covetousness and money and all of these beautiful things and these price tags. And and then somewhere behind, way back in the corner, there was this dusty, old, rusty thing in the corner that didn't look like very much at all. And someone asked and said, hey, well, what's that over there in the corner? And, and so he said, not for sale, not for sale. And he said, no, no, what is it? What is it? I mean, it looks like nothing. I mean, what, what is that over there? He says, oh. That's, that's my favorite. That's my favorite instrument of all, all that I have. He says, this instrument, this instrument is so precious to me. And they say, well, what is it? What is it? And he pulls it out. And they look at him and say, what is it? He says, this is discouragement. He goes, this is discouragement. And he said, this, this weapon, if I can use this weapon on a person, on a Christian, if I can get this successfully maneuvered into their life, then it opens the door for me to use any of the other things in my cachet. I can get anything else in once I get this in, if I can get this in. And that's true, isn't it? When we become discouraged, we become susceptible to all types of different temptations. And it's not just true for discouragement, it's true in any area of spiritual life. If Satan can get a foothold in any area, then that opens the door for him to to do anything else within our lives. And so Paul says that we're to have our loins girded or our armor girded, every area of our life attached to and in line with the truth of God's word. 
He moves on and he talks about next the breastplate of righteousness there at the end of verse 14. He says, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, in the Roman armor, the breastplate was that thing that went across the front of your body and it protected your vital organs. And I'm looking at the reflection in the back thing, waiting for the picture of the breastplate to come up, but there's no picture. So you're just going to have to use your imagination and, and, and picture the Roman breastplate that went from the top of the neck and it came down and it covered all the way to the bottom of the abdomen and it protected the, the vital organs of the soldier. One of the most powerful weapons in the cachet of Satan is the weapon of condemnation. If he can get a person to to, to feel condemned as though God doesn't love them, that God isn't for them, that their ultimate destination is going to be hell and that they aren't really saved, that, that, that what their conversion wasn't really real and God isn't pleased with them. If Satan can, can get condemnation into the life of a Christian, that is an extremely powerful tool in the hand of the enemy. And here Paul, he talks about the breastplate of righteousness. Now, righteousness is spoken of in two different ways in the Bible. There is imputed righteousness, and there is practical righteousness. Imputed righteousness is that which we received at the moment we were saved. The grace of God, Jesus Christ, dying in our place, giving us the gift of eternal life, not by anything that we have done, but completely through the work of the cross. His righteousness being freely given, the gift of our salvation. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by His grace He has saved us. That's what the Bible calls imputed righteousness. It's the gift of our salvation, and it has nothing to do with us. And it's something that we receive and carry by faith. We have confidence in God that He has saved us by His grace and that we have not done it ourselves. It isn't by our own works. That's imputed righteousness. Practical righteousness is our behavior. It's our obedience in the practical things that God has told us to do. It's our submission to what he commands us in his word. It's practical righteousness. It's right behavior. And what practical righteousness produces in the life of a Christian is a conscience that's clear of offense. And a conscience that's clear of offense results in confidence in the day of distress. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul is having a bit of a vulnerable moment as he's talking about his weakness to the church in Corinth. And listen to what Paul says about his own experience while he was in the continent of Asia. He says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raises the dead. In other words, Paul is saying that it was so bad, things were so harsh, things were so heavy upon us that we just wanted to die, even to the point where we couldn't even trust in ourselves anymore. And then he finishes off that testimony with this in verse 12. He says, for our rejoicing is this, 
listen carefully, the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation or our lifestyle in the world and more abundantly toward you. Here's what Paul is saying here. He's saying things were so bad for us while we were in Asia that we wanted to die. We had the sentence of death. We thought this is it. God is finished with us. But he said, but this is our rejoicing. Is that our conscience was clear. And what that clear conscience afforded us in the day of our distress is that we were confident that God was still for us and he was going to deliver us. In other words, Satan sought to use the weapon of condemnation against Paul when the distressing day came. But because Paul could take imputed righteousness, salvation by grace, and practical righteousness, that which gave him a clear conscience, and he could put those two things together, when the attack of Satan came that said, God hates you, he's going to destroy you, and the reason for this trial is because he's against you, Paul could say, no, no, no. I've got, the, I've got the breastplate of righteousness. He's got no way to use that on me. You can stab. See, I didn't have my breastplate. The, the belt holds it all together, you know. See, it didn't have any place, the condemnation within Paul, because he had the breastplate of righteousness, both imputed and practical. And see, here's what happens in your life and in mine. The evil day comes. The temptation, the trial, the distress, the financial burden, or whatever it is in your specific instance, and Satan will stand on your shoulder with a two-by-four, or a sledgehammer, or an axe, whatever he picks up as close as at the time, and he will begin to pound you with condemnation. This is happening because God hates you. This is happening because you're not really in the faith. This is happening because of what you did when you were seven years old and you lied. This is what happened to you. This is happening to you because of the way you treated your parents and, and you never said sorry before they passed away. This is happening to you because, and all of a sudden, all these flood of con- and, and what you can do is that you can say, well, wait a minute, I have imputed righteousness. That is that I am completely innocent of all sin because of the blood of Christ that's been placed upon my life. And I also have practical righteousness and that there is no sin in my life that is not repented of yeah i sin i'm human i fall i don't make make it to the standard that i wish i did but there's nothing in my life that i'm harboring and that i'm not you know repenting of and in confession of and so i have imputed righteousness and i have practical righteousness and what that allows me to do is when satan stands there with that sledgehammer of condemnation i could say no 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 that's not why this is happening The reason for this trial, this trouble, this tribulation is not because I'm not saved or because God hates me. I have the breastplate of righteousness. I'm protected from the use of Satan's condemnation against me. And it gives us confidence in the day of distress. He moves on in verse 15 and he talks about the boots that we're given in this armory. Back in Ephesians, I'm in Corinthians wondering why my text is wrong, you know, but... He says, and your feet being shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. 
Now, the Roman armor, you know, we would picture these boots. You know, you look at the soldiers that we have today and that we, the boots that they have. That's not what the Romans had. What they had was more of a sandal. You could see your feet through it. It was nothing that could stop an arrow or, you know, a boulder or anything like that. But, but what the, 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 the sandal of the soldier was designed to do was to protect their feet from tough terrain but also afford them the mobility to move around quickly and to be agile in the time of battle or in a war or in a struggle. And so there was these, these sandals, more or less, that they were given. Now, in the Christian armor, the Apostle Paul says that we're to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The feet in the Bible are always linked with our walk, or our actions in the Christian realm. And he defines what that means in the verse. What is our walk in the context of this battle? He says we're to walk with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That is, that we're to be actively engaged in Christian service and in kingdom business. We're to be consistently moving and operating in the realm of God's kingdom, serving him. We're not to stop serving the Lord if we want to stand in the battle. If you can imagine with me for a minute that you are in God's army and you're in a particular battalion. Let's just say the people in this room are all, we're one battalion and we're moving together. And we're on our way. We have an agenda. We have a purpose. And Satan has set up an ambush. And so along the way, it, it, off in the sides, all these demons and everything have their, their swords drawn and their bows and arrows. And we're just innocently kind of meandering along. Let me ask you, if 19 of us are moving and one is standing still, which one is going to be the target? No brainer, right? The one who's standing still. And the same thing is true in the spiritual realm. A moving target is harder to hit than someone who is standing idle. And in this Christian battle that we're in, if you are idle, if you're not in the battle, if you're not serving the Lord in some capacity, it makes you more susceptible. We're to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That is that we're to be about the work of the Lord, gospel business. Idle hands and idle minds are still the devil's workshop. And he is able to work in the life of a Christian more effectively if they're idle. If they're not doing something in the name of the Lord. He moves on there in verse 16. And he tells us that we're to take the shield of faith. Above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now, the Romans perfected the body shield. No one ever made an improvement upon the Roman body shield. It was light enough that it could be carried easily in battle, but yet it was large enough that it would cover the body completely if it was used uh, in the right way and held in the right position, you know. And, you know, that was in Rome, but for the Christian's defense, he tells us that the purpose of the shield, the shield of faith, is that we might be able to quench all the fiery darts 
of the wicked or the fiery arrows. You know, we've all seen those old movies before guns and cannons and all where they would, you know, light the arrows on fire and they would try to launch them over the wall and see if they could hit something flammable and, and, and you know, set a city on fire and all the rest. And, and here he says that our enemy has us in the crosshairs of his bow with a fiery arrow aimed right at us and he's seeking to, to, to take us out with a fiery arrow. We say, well, what in the world is that? What are the fiery darts of the wicked? You know, invisible. <laughs> we can't see them. How are we to even know or identify what they are? Listen, it's true that Satan cannot possess a Christian. Don't let anybody tell you that you can have a demon if you're a Christian. God doesn't timeshare. The Bible says that Jesus Christ lives in you and he doesn't share space with Satan. Satan doesn't like the light, you know. So you can't be possessed. In fact, Satan can't even touch you if you belong to God. But what Satan can do and what he does, and he's very good at it, is he talks really loud. What are the fiery darts? In Psalm chapter 64, David declares this in verse 1. He says, hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked, from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity, who wet their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words, that they may shoot in secret at the perfect, suddenly they do shoot at him, and they fear not. The fiery dart of the enemy are the words that he whispers loudly into our ears. I don't know if this happens to you. It happens to me all the time. But I'll be going along, and everything will be completely normal, and I'll be having just a, a, a normal day. I'll be whistling. I'll have had my coffee. Everything is, is going well. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, nothing changes. I didn't get the mail. I didn't open up my email. My phone didn't ring. I didn't get a text message. Everything is just going along normal. And all of a sudden, I'll just have this wave of anxiety. Oh, oh, you know, how, how am I going to take care of this? How am I going to, how am I going to do that? You know, what's going to, how am I going to pay for, for you know, how, and, 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 and nothing, nothing changed. The bank account is still the same as it was 10 minutes ago. Everything is normal, but all of a sudden I've got like this fear or this anxiety that came upon me. Or it could happen like this. You're just walking along, you know, you're living your life, you're working, you're busy, and all of a sudden, flashing into your mind is an image that you wish you never saw. Does that ever happen to anybody else? It's something that, that, that you, you know, you, it's been years. Or, or maybe someone told you a dirty joke when you were eight years old. And, and you can't remember the name of the person that lives next door to you but somehow you still remember the punchline of this joke that you heard when you were eight years old. And it just comes there. It's like, it's like hitting you right in the face. Or a perverse thought. Or a bitter thought. Or an angry word towards someone. Or, or, just like, or, or maybe just a, something comes in that you, a, a suspicion. You become suspicious of someone. That someone is plotting against you. That behind closed doors there's a conversation taking place. And you're the subject. and You're being gossiped about. And all of a sudden this dart. It's like you, nothing happened. 
And yet you've just been ambushed by this onslaught of fiery darts of the wicked one. As he takes aim and he tries to get us to doubt the promises of God, the provisions of God, the protection of God, and the faithfulness of God. But here's what happens if the fiery dart gets in. Because they come all the time. They come at us daily. But here's what happens if the fiery dart gets past the shield. It begins to start a fire within us. We begin to believe that someone really is gossiping about us, even though it's unsubstantiated by the facts. And it begins to burn a fire of bitterness and rage within us. The fire begins. A dart of lust is aimed at you, and the shield isn't up, and so the lust gets in, and and, and all of a sudden the fire begins to spread, and what started as this thought that came from the pit of hell now is beginning to consume me because this lust, oh, if I could only have that car or that person or that whatever situation it might be, that the fire begins. A fire of anxiety begins to come upon us because we, we let that worry hit us. We begin, a, a dart of worry comes and we begin to think about it. Well, what will happen if I do lose my house? What will happen if I, if I do get the foreclosure? What happens if the, the, the stock market does? And all of a sudden, this fire of anxiety begins to burn within us and it, and it will seek to consume us, you know. Well, the shield that quenches the fiery darts of the enemy, is the shield of faith. And here's how it works. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5, through 5, which is the parallel passage to this scripture here. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is, they're not physical, it's not a real shield, They're not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And here's how it works. Verse 5. Casting down imaginations. Do you hear that? Casting down imaginations. That covers everything, doesn't it? The word image is tucked right into that word. So an image comes into your mind. You don't let the image in. You cast the image down. Or maybe it is an imagination. You begin to imagine what will happen if... You lose your job. Or if you don't pay it on time. Or if your children do go astray from the things of God. The imagination, but it's not real. It's not substantiated. So he says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. What does that mean? Well, I think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, that whole section there, five times in that small section, he tells us the same thing. He says, take no anxious thought. What you will eat, what you will drink, what you will wear. For is not the life more than food and more than clothing? Take no anxious thought. So that means the anxious thought comes, and do you know what you have permission and commandment to do? Not take it. Don't take it. Oh, anxious thought. Here comes an anxious thought. And, and everything in us, I got to take that. I got to answer this. The, the door's knocking. It's definitely, I got it. No, you don't. Jesus said, You have permission. You don't have to answer that. No, no thanks. Not taking it. And it doesn't matter if it's an anxious thought or whether it's a carnal thought or whether it's a sinful thought or whether it's anything that is 
contrary to the truth and the facts of God's word. And so to use the shield of faith is to weigh what comes. Weigh the the validity of the fear or the threat. Or weigh the morality of the thought or the imagination against the facts of the faith. And then not take it. Cast it down. Bring it into captivity. Now it takes a little practice to use these things, doesn't it? But he gives us the power and the strength to do it. Let's move on. In verse 17, he talks to us about the helmet of salvation. He says, take the helmet of salvation, well, and then and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The helmet of salvation. Now, this is the one I really wish we had the picture of. Because when you see the helmet of salvation, what you recognize, in the Roman armor at least, is that it really only served one purpose. And that was identification. If you have ever seen a Roman helmet, the only conclusion that you can draw from it is that the national bird of the Roman Empire was a chicken. Because they had this thing coming up, and it was like this mohawk-looking thing that looked like the head of a chicken. You know, that's exactly what it looks like. And, and all that, the only purpose that it would serve is that if you saw a Roman soldier coming your way, you knew exactly what was coming your way. Because no other helmet or you know, piece of armament that has ever been created ever looks anything like the Roman helmet. And I really believe that that is a key to our standing in this battle is that our colors are clear and that our identification as those that belong to Christ is out in the open for everyone to see. Is that we don't try to hide what we are because it's not the political temperature or the accepted uh, thing for the day that we live in. I make it my point, you know, in any time that I can, that when I'm in a, in a place or in a group of people, to somehow say something very, very quick in the beginning, whether it's starting of a new job or whether you're working with a group of people for something or or even in a neighborhood that you might move into, establish it very quickly in some way let them know that you are a Christian. Because the longer you go without people knowing that, the easier it is to kind of hide that and, and, and to, you know, not really let that out, you know. But yet part of our defense is to stand boldly in what we are as believers in Jesus Christ. The only time a Roman soldier would take off his helmet is when he was at ease and not afraid of the threat of a battle or of of an ambush. If he was off duty. And you and I in this battle, as long as we're in this world, we are on duty. And therefore, we're to leave that helmet right where it is, the helmet of our salvation, that we belong to Jesus Christ. And then number six is the sword of the Spirit. It's the only offensive I didn't say offensive, I said offensive. The only offensive part of this armor that we have, he says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And in the Roman armor, there were two swords. There was the long sword, and there was the short sword. The long sword was used in, you know, in, the, in the war when they would be hacking, you know. But the short sword was used for close quarters combat. You know, when one-on-one wrestling, which is what Paul is talking about here. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And this is talking about the short sword. And he tells us that for you and I, the sword of offense that we have is the word of God. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, it tells us that he was led into the wilderness or to the desert for 40 days to be tempted of the devil. 
And Satan came at Jesus with every temptation, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I would half expect that Jesus there in the text would just say, okay, legions of angels, blammo, you know, and just take Satan out. He could have done that. You know, he had the authority, but he didn't do that. And I'm really glad that he didn't do that because we can't do that, you know. We don't have that kind of power. But what did Jesus do? He gave us an example. How did Jesus defeat Satan when he came at him with temptation? Three times for three temptations, he said, It is written. It is written. It is written. Three times he gave scripture in response to the temptation that Satan was bringing against him, and Satan had no answer for the word of God. He could not. Now, he didn't just give generic scripture. That would be the long sword. You know, the battle sword where you're just kind of hacking. And he's, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, and you're just, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about having a working knowledge of the Bible that will help you in the time of attack so that you can give Satan the proper scripture to accompany the type of temptation or the attack that is coming your way. My favorite movie as a child was The Princess Bride. Anybody seen The Princess Bride? Great, great. I used to watch the sword fights, and I would memorize them. I would memorize the, the, the words that they used, the, the moves where they put their hands, the choreography, the flips. I couldn't do the flips, but I, but I, would, I would try, you know, and, 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 and I just would do it. And anybody I could get to just take the other sword and just, ah, da, 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 you know, and go through the whole thing, you know. And, and I memorized it. And that, that, that's such a great picture for me now in my Christian faith. Because that's what Paul is essentially telling us that we're to do is get real good at using your sword memorize the moves when this attack comes this is how you counter it when they come at you when satan comes at you this way this is the proper move this is the scripture the verse that's going to help that's going to cause him to flee in that instance become very skillful with the sword that you have been given and Satan can't contend with the word, and so he'll leave. Paul moves on, and he tells us about the final resource that we have at our disposal in verse 18. He says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. The seventh and final ingredient in this equipping that we're being given for this battle, I'll call it all Prayer. Praying always with all prayer. In Roman days, when there would be a battle before walkie-talkies and cell phones and you know radios and all the rest, the generals would always find the highest point in the terrain, whether it was on top of a hill or on top of a mountain, and they would watch everything that they could see in their scope of vision, and then they would communicate to generals on other hills and people down in the battle, maybe with flags or by sending messengers, because their whole purpose was to give information, to give intelligence to those that were down in the trenches that were fighting in the battles. Nowadays, we have CENTCOM, you know, central communication. And central communication is the, the kind of the, uh, you know, the big briefing uh, thing that, that just gives input information. And it's necessary. It's the most important thing in a battle. Because in a battle, the thing that happens the most frequently to someone who's fighting is that they can lose perspective. 
And I don't know if that happens to you when Satan is, is pounding on you in the middle of uh, you know, the evil day, but you can lose perspective. And sometimes the thing that we need the most is just perspective. And prayer is our means of communicating with heaven. And it's opening the door for God to speak to us and to brief us and to say, listen, the the covetousness division has just been launched against you. They're coming around the backside. You know, the the anger division, the arrows of anger are coming from the right side. And, And prayer is our link to heaven that gives us perspective in the day of battle. And he says that that prayer is not just to be personal, but he also says that we're to pray for others. He says, praying with all prayer and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And what he's saying is, listen, you're not alone in this battle. That if you're facing a particular struggle or going through a particular test, there are other people that are linked to you and that are you know, walking with you in the Christian life that are facing the same thing. So stand with them as well. Prayer is the resource that we have to gain access to God for help and for perspective in the time of our battle. And then Paul closes out the epistle um, in verses 19 and 20. He gives to us a personal prayer request. Notice he says, And for me, pray for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. It's amazing to me that Paul the Apostle, his prayer request to the church in Ephesus, the one thing that he asks them to pray for is that he would have boldness in speaking of the things of God to others. When you read the book of Acts and you follow the life of Paul and you read the epistles and the things that he did, the, the, the natural conclusion that we would come to is that boldness was a part of his personality. That it was just a natural ingredient in who the man Paul was. And, and I would go so far as to say that if every single one of us were to take a guess of what would be at the top of Paul's prayer request list, and we were to write it down and put it in a box and, and then read them all, not one of us would guess that Paul's request would be for boldness. And what Paul is telling us here about himself is that his boldness was not something that came naturally to him, but it was something that was supernatural. And he's asking them to pray for him that he would have boldness to speak the word as he says he ought to. When's the last time you prayed for boldness? Or when's the last time I should maybe ask that you justified not being bold because it's not a natural part of your personality? Well, it's just not natural for me to open up and talk about the things of God to communicate the gospel, you know. Boldness is something that comes from the Holy Spirit, and it's something that we need. I think of the apostles in the book of Acts. It says that, that they spoke the word boldly, and it says that the Sanhedrin, or the Jews, it says when they, took, they saw the boldness of Peter and John, it says that they took notice of them that they had been with Jesus. Boldness is not a result of an outgoing personality. It's a result of someone who's close to Jesus and is supernaturally empowered and willing to speak boldly. 
The Apostle Paul is challenging us at the end of this by his own prayer request. Because boldness isn't something that's reserved for the apostle or for the pastor or for the mature Christian, but it's something that each one of us needs on a daily basis so that we can do what we're supposed to do. And that is to share, to shine, and to give the message of the gospel to a lost and dying world. We need boldness. Then he closes the epistle. He says, But that you also may know my affairs, and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that you might know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. As we close the epistle to the Ephesians and the musicians can come, I pray that you would know, that you would comprehend all that is yours as those that are in Christ Jesus. That you would understand all that's been laid to your account that you have because you are called by his name. That you would know how much he loves you and that you'd believe it and not doubt it. That you'd know how much he's done for you, how much he is doing for you, and how much he has planned for you. That that would be at the front of your minds constantly. I pray that your walk would be empowered by his spirit and that you'd walk worthy of his name. That you would love one another. Stay free of the world's ways and that you would experience his peace within your marriages, with your children in your homes, with your families would prosper in your pursuits and the things that he has you doing for his name and that you'd find victory in your lives to resist the attack to stand against the wiles of the devil and to be victorious in the times of temptation next week we'll begin the book of Philippians let's pray together Father we just thank you so much for your word thank you for the testimonies the truth the completeness of it we pray that you would take the things that we've heard tonight and that you would give us the grace to stand, that you'd give us the faith to believe, and that we would have the power of your might. We thank you, Lord, that you are able to make us stand, and that it's not by might, and it's not by power, but that it's by your Spirit sustaining and keeping us. So be our highest aim, our glorious affection. We just thank you so much in Jesus' name. Let's all stand.